Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, in honor of Delta, we're going to take a break from our planned hashtag zero COVID, and we're going to cover SARS-CoV-2. I'm going to put together all of the clips I've been putting out on the YouTube channel into one episode. And if you want to keep up with all of the content, you're going to have to go to YouTube and subscribe. And I, Prasad, MDMPH, check it out there. And without further ado, this is a special episode. It's in violation of season four rules, but it is in fact, hashtag all COVID, hashtag Delta. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. When are randomized control trials necessary? And when are they superfluous? I've been looking on Twitter and I see people don't know what they're talking about. So let me walk you through randomization. I think the easiest way to conceptualize this is to think of a spectrum. On one end, we have the absolute worst thing you can do to somebody. And on the other end, you have the absolute best thing you can do to somebody. And in the middle is a line of neutrality, all the things in life we do to somebody that doesn't matter one way or the other and how they do. Let's think about the worst end. Probably the worst thing you could do to somebody is something that will rapidly and abruptly end their life, such as shooting them point blank range in the chest or giving them some poison to drink. On the other end, the spectrum of what you can do to benefit someone the most, we have pulling someone out of the way of a speeding bus. If somebody's standing at the bus stop looking at their phone, you pull them out of the way of the bus and the bus whizzes by, it's fair to say you saved their life. What else might you do? If they're falling out of an airplane and you give them a parachute, you've done a wonderful thing for that person. Because we know if you fall out of an airplane without a parachute, they're at best case reports of survival. There's just a few. And if you wear a parachute, I hear from the American Parachuting Association that the death rate is seven per 10 million jumps or some very low number. So you're talking about an absolute risk reduction on one end, 99.99993% or something like that. And on the other end, the worst thing you can do to somebody, you're talking about an absolute harm of 99.9999% if you shoot someone in the right spot. And in between, we have everything else, all the things you could do to somebody. Let's talk about smoking. Smoking, of course, it's linked to lung cancer in the very classic epidemiology papers. It was found to have a 20 odds ratio, a 19-fold increase in the risk of lung cancer, which is a tremendous risk of harm. That's over here on the spectrum. What about something else that we consider harmful that might have a smaller effect size, such as eating one serving of bacon once a week or eating other red meat? Maybe we're talking about odds ratios of 1.3 to 3 something in that ballpark, some very modest harm. Now let's talk about on the beneficial side of things. What about medical interventions? Well, you know, if you stent someone for an acute coronary event, if you stent someone for a STEMI, maybe you improve their survival 20 percentage points over 30 days, something massive, a tremendous absolute risk reduction mortality, that's, that's over here on the right. But most things we do in biomedicine offer very, very modest to marginal effect sizes maybe improve someone's odds of 30-day mortality by 1% or 2%, something in that range, a few percentage points. And that's over here on the right, the things we're doing in biomedicine. Something's not even, that, not even that much smaller than that, particularly in cancer medicine. So here we have this spectrum of things, the things you can do that'll harm somebody, tremendous harm, and the things you'll do that'll benefit someone, tremendous benefit. So where do randomized control trials fit in? 
Well, randomized control trials in biomedicine are typically done for interventions of putative benefit. We typically do it on this side of the set space. We do it for things that have at best modest to marginal effect sizes. Why? Because without randomization, you might have a hard time separating your hope and wishful thinking from the true effect size. And the real reason, of course, is randomization helps three problems. It helps the problem of confounding. Whereas if you didn't randomize, there's some difference between people who got a treatment and who didn't get a treatment, and you're not fully accounting for that in your analysis. The second thing randomization helps is the time zero problem. It sets the time zero, it anchors it at the moment of randomization. So from that moment on, you can look at the two groups comparably, knowing that they started at the same time. When you do retrospective analyses of data sets, you may not have the same time zero. For instance, if somebody presented after a heart attack and you looked at people who ate a bag of Cheetos versus those who didn't eat a bag of Cheetos, it turns out that the people who ate a bag of Cheetos after suffering a heart attack live longer than those who didn't eat a bag of Cheetos. How's that possible? Well, in order to enter the group, I ate a bag of Cheetos, you had to live long enough to eat the bag of Cheetos. And so you have the guarantee Cheeto time, the time until the bag of Cheetos. And I use this Cheeto analogy because people on Twitter will know Robert Ye from the Harvard Medical School loves to use the Cheetos analogy. And this is immortal or guarantee time. And that's a problem with retrospective analyses that randomization fixes. And the third benefit of randomization, of course, is multiplicity. You can only test a hypothesis so much, although Avastin, we're trying to do a little bit more, but you can only test it so much. And that's an advantage over retrospective observational studies where you can test it many, many times. So when these brainiacs say things like, well, we didn't do a randomized control trial of smoking, so we can't do a randomized control trial of remdesivir or regorafenib, you'd say, well, that's ridiculous. You also didn't do a randomized control trial of shooting someone point blank rage in the chest, but we generally don't do randomized control trials for things that are thought to be putatively harmful. We do them for things that are thought to be putatively beneficial. And actually we have done randomized control trials for smoking cessation strategies. So the thing here that's thought to be putatively beneficial, you can do a randomized trial. Similarly, if some brainiac says, we didn't do a randomized trial of the parachute, so we can't do a randomized trial of my favorite medical practice, you might tell them, well, you know what? The parachute has an effect size of 99.9993% over a 15 minute time window. And your intervention, surprise, surprise, is not that good. It's a marginal or modest intervention. Why? Because nothing in biomedicine has that effect size. How do we know this? We know this from several lines of evidence, I think. One, from a paper by Tiago Pereira and colleagues in JAMA, where they looked at Cochrane studies, those that had a very large treatment effect, and they found only one with a consistent meta-analytic estimate of very large treatment effect on mortality, and that was ECMO for neonates and respiratory distress. And there, even there, the absolute risk reduction was something like 40%. It weren't 99.9%. And in an analysis that I did, led by Michael Hayes in the Canadian Medical Journal, we looked at most medical practices that cite this classic parachute paper. And we found that they are seldom able to name an intervention that offers a very large effect size. And when they do, the best effect sizes they can muster are 35 to 40%. So even when we try, we can't find large effect sizes in biomedicine. Now there's a few things in biomedicine that I think have a very large effect size. And there might be a few instances where you don't need randomized controlled trials. And Paul Glazius and colleagues from Australia, they keep a running list, but they are few and far between. And they're not most things in biomedicine. So what does this have to do with the topics de jour of Twitter? Well, it turns out you can do a randomized trial for lots of things that are disputed, such as should children between the ages of two and five wear a cloth mask, such as do we need to give a booster shot to everyone? You can do a randomized control trial and power it for clinical outcome. 
Now, when it comes to children wearing cloth masks, the WHO and the CDC actively disagree on that recommendation. The WHO advises against it in children under six, and the CDC says do it from two to five. So there is global equipoise. There's actually marked difference in country to country practices. And yet people believe, oh, well, we can't do it because it's like smoking. No, it isn't. We can't do it because like a perishing. No, it isn't. No one possibly believes it has a 99.999% effect size. And if it did, it would have been visibly and glaringly obvious to everyone by now. So it doesn't. So what's the take home here? Randomization is the greatest thing we have to separate hope and bioplausibility from truth. And it's useful to test interventions with at best a modest to marginal effect size that are thought to be a putative benefit. And these analogies that we didn't do one for smoking, we didn't do one for giving someone poison, and we didn't do one for shooting them, or we didn't do one for parachutes has nothing to do with this issue. And people don't understand this. It's the single greatest mistake I see over and over in biomedicine. So this is a brief summary of where randomized control trials can help you. And the last thing I'd say, equipoise. Equipoise is an ethical principle that says when there is genuine uncertainty in the community of people, it is okay to do these studies. It has been debated. I think some people believe that it is not necessary nor sufficient for the ethical conduct of randomized controlled trials. And the people who believe that are Frank Miller and Steve Joffe in a New England Journal paper. Other people argue like myself is that in an instance like this where there's massive differences in global best practice between Scandinavia and the United States and no one has any credible data, there is equipoise. And the last thing about equipoise is your equipoise in your heart gets quite large the more you read randomized control trials in medicine, because a lot of smart people for a lot of years thought they knew the right answer. They knew things like flecainide, post-MI, were going to save lives. Oh, wait, it actually increased mortality. They knew interventions like early goal-directed therapy that worked in that single-center Manny Rivers paper was going to replicate in the multi-center study. Oh, it didn't. And there are many such examples detailed in a book that I like called Ending Medical Reversal of such people getting it wrong. So what's the overall lesson here? Randomization is your friend. It's what you do when there's genuine uncertainty. People who think that we didn't do it for serious harms, and by the way, an odds ratio of 20 is quite massive. And people who think we are not doing it for obvious benefits like parachute, people who think those apply to the situation of modest to marginal effect sizes, which is most of biomedicine, which is most of public health, they're out of their minds. They don't know what they're talking about. They're losing credibility by the day. And they're holding us all back as a society because their Luddite thinking is preventing us from doing necessary randomized controlled trials. So on that positive note, those are my thoughts on randomization. The American Academy of Pediatrics is back and they have a new blunder. They've blundered into a tweet that created quite a firestorm online. And I gotta read you this tweet because I think this is emblematic of so many of their problems and I think it captures a lot of it. Here's the tweet. Babies and young children study faces. So you may worry that having mass caregivers would harm children's language development. There are no studies to support this concern. Young children will use other clues like gestures and tone of voice. That's their statement. And it's part of a long thread trying to encourage mask use. Here's what I have as a problem with this, with this little tweet of theirs. Yes, there are no studies that prove definitively that having a baby be taken care of by caretakers wearing a mask covering half their face is bad for that baby's language development, their future IQ, their future prospects. We don't know. But the reason is because no one's studying it. And it's never happened before. In the history of humanity, people have never put a mask on their face for many, many hours during the day, for months and months on end, for babies in daycare. That's never happened. So they don't know that it's not deleterious. And in fact, common sense suggests 
that the face might serve some purpose and there might be some reason why babies like to look at the face and something might be lost. Now, I'm not saying that on balance, it isn't a good idea to have their policy. They might be right on balance, but to discount the concern prima facie, that is really rather woefully inadequate from an organization that's supposed to be defending children. And that's what really bothers me about the AAP. They have a track record, in my opinion, of making recommendations when they could just be quiet. When you don't know, when you have no clue, when you have no credible evidence, you don't have to recommend anything at all. But they insist on making recommendations. Here are a few, lay that baby to bed on its stomach. Oh, actually that was a big mistake. You gotta put it on its back. Their next mistake, maybe about 20 years ago, when they advised people at high risk of peanut allergies, don't let the child have access to peanuts. Well, it turned out that was precisely the wrong thing to do. They could have actually done the randomized trials that showed the right thing to do, which is early exposure to peanut allergens. Those trials were eventually done. They could have done those trials before they made the recommendation, but they chose to make a recommendation without those studies. And here they're discounting a very legitimate concern, which I think is really understood globally. And that's why in Europe, they have more sense than the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is so singularly focused on masking the caretakers for babies and very young children that they have forgotten that there's not a lot of credible evidence for some of these claims. They could do the credible evidence. You could do some cluster randomized controlled trials to adjudicate the difference between the WHO's position, which is don't mask kids under six, and the CDC's position, which is mask kids from two to five. That's a global difference. There's differences in policies between Sweden, Switzerland, the United States. There's equipoids. They could do these studies. We could ask, is it actually a wise thing for the caretakers to wear the mask? Does it actually slow the spread amongst caretakers in the facility, amongst babies? Now, these babies that are, that are being in daycare for prolonged periods of time, they're often the children of people who are essential workers. It's a vulnerable population of people. And so for the AAP to be so flippant in their pronouncement, I think they deserve a great deal of scorn. This isn't a random idiot on the internet. There's so many of them. This is the American Academy of Pediatrics and this is the standard they're setting. It's as if they have capitulated to groupthink, to tribal ideology, and they cannot use reason or science to try to adjudicate these claims. So I think the pile on the AAP was legitimate. Now, some people say, well, what, you think you know more the AAP? I was like, on this issue? Yeah, I think they got it wrong. And I think you don't have to be a great expert in science to know they got it wrong. It seems a bit bizarre to claim that there is no reason at all to be concerned if a baby never sees a face. Why do we have faces? One might wonder, and one might have a follow-up question for the AP. So I think you, it's not really quite daring to question, I think, a very stupid tweet, a stupid tweet that they should walk back and a policy they should revisit because if they really care about children, they would actually recommend some controlled study to try to sort this out. You gotta collect the data. You can't live in a data-free zone for year two, year three of the pandemic. You got, I gave you one year. I gave you one year to do whatever you wanted with no credible data. I'm not gonna give you years two and three. I'm gonna make you earn it. You gotta have some data if you wanna recommend these things indefinitely with no end date in sight. You need to generate credible data. That's part of the science process. Don't say follow the science. Mechanistic science, that's not really persuasive science. We're talking about broad sweeping policies. You need cluster randomization. You need randomized trials of the policy itself. I think there's a big problem in this profession where people don't understand that quasi-experimental retrospective observation studies, that's not good enough for decisions of this magnitude. So I, I feel bad that they said this. I'm embarrassed by them. I uh, wouldn't want to be associated with them. And, I, and our friends in Europe are going to look at this statement and they're going to ask, 
have they lost their minds, the AAP? And it would be a good question. So those are my thoughts on this stupid tweet, which is emblematic of a broader failure that they have demonstrated, which is a failure to generate evidence and a failure to take some of these concerns seriously, which would lead you to generate the evidence. American institutions have something in common. The institutions that are supposed to protect and champion the interests of children all hate Donald Trump more than they love kids. That single fact explains a lot of the decision-making throughout this pandemic by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the CDC, and the teachers unions. Allow me to explain. Now, of course, in America, in contrast with our European colleagues, we had massive school closures, but we didn't have all schools closed equally. Of course, private schools, schools that collect money, they ran in full force. And public schools weren't closed everywhere. They were closed, would you believe? Not related to the number of people who had SARS-CoV-2 in the community. School closure wasn't related, of course, to the number of people in the hospital with SARS-CoV-2 or even the number of deaths. School closure and SARS-CoV-2 have no correlation, as far as I know, in any metric. In fact, the metrics that predict school closure are solely if a district is left-leaning, in which case it's more likely to be closed. And if a district has a strong teacher's union, in which case it's far more likely to be closed. So the children who have been punished by school closure are predominantly children in democratic stronghold cities who are poorer and often of minority status. And that is a consequence of the teacher's unions who have largely opposed school reopening, even with a number of reasonable measures. And in contrast with our European colleagues who have reopened schools. Now, why? What accounts for the fact that the teachers unions were so vehemently opposed to school reopening for so many months and working as we speak to, I believe, thwart school reopening and find a way to close us again. What explains this? And it's all explained by one quote. The moment Donald J. Trump said that he thought schools should reopen, many people decided that they shouldn't merely because they dislike him. The same is true for the AAP. Now, Donald J. Trump, he notoriously put his thumb on the nose against masks. He didn't wear it, and he wasn't a good role model in that, and I don't condone that behavior. But merely because he's not a good role model doesn't mean you have to just do the opposite. But in the United States, we did do the opposite. We, the AAP and the CDC, recommended that even very young children between the ages of two and four wear cloth masks in daycare and in schools, wherever they may be. They should wear a cloth mask. This is in direct contrast with the World Health Organization, which felt that this was a ridiculous recommendation, that the harms of this are not outweighed by the benefits. And the truth is no one knows because there has not been any proper study of this topic. We don't know what is the reduction in SARS-CoV-2 spread from doing this versus not doing this. Our European colleagues think it's ridiculous to study because the upper bound of the benefit has got to be so low, it's outweighed by the harms. But we think it's ridiculous to study because it's gotta work, it's a parachute. Well, that's a funny place to be in. But all of this originally was motivated because this is the opposite of what a man we dislike happened to say. And that's no good way to do policy. You see, thoughtful and reasonable people don't merely choose their positions to thwart someone they dislike. Because people you dislike, who are often wrong and often heinous and say things that we strongly oppose, they sometimes might just be right. And I don't know about all his views, but I happen to know that on the issue of whether or not schools should open in SARS-CoV-2 times, the answer is yes, they ought to. Because the net benefit of schools is tremendous. 
it affects both the health of the children, their upward mobility, and the stability of democracy itself. While the harms are actually rather small, numbers of studies show that there is no significant increase in SARS-CoV-2 spread in a community from opening school, and that schools can be opened with very little spread inside the school, even when there's massive community spread outside the school. Closing schools is the most catastrophic decision ever made in the United States in the last year. It's going to have repercussions 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and will shake the very foundations of this country. And the people who contributed to it, they thought they were doing a good thing, but they didn't understand that in complex policy choices, you have to independently appraise the data and you can't merely do the opposite of what people you dislike want to do. If someone you dislike suggests doing something smart, you should just do it. You shouldn't just do the opposite. So when it comes to masking young children, when it comes to school reopening, there is a commonality amongst all these institutions they are not robust enough to triumph and transcend politics. They are dragged into politics. The people who participate in these panels, they cannot think clearly about evidence. They put their partisan preferences ahead of a sober appraisal of medical evidence. I don't blame them. It's natural to be drawn into tribes. But I would have hoped, I would have expected, I would have wished that academic-minded people people who are thoughtful about evidence would be able to triumph over these baser instincts, but we have not in the United States. The consequences, they will be quite dire. I expect very, very bad things to come from these policy choices. And I'm a little bit afraid that more people do not recognize and speak out about it in the current moment. As I said in a prior video on this channel, you get one year, I always give you one year to do whatever you want without any evidence. But when you get to year two, and you start to institute ridiculous policies based on no evidence, I'm gonna call you out on it. And that's why Stanford with your testing of vaccinated asymptomatic and masked individuals is getting my scorn on Twitter. And that's why places that institute mandates for very, very young children, even though those are against the WHO guidelines and kind of against basic common sense and also not supported by any prospective randomized evidence, they're gonna get my scorn too. And I worry a little bit that even though this man that many of us, myself included, didn't like, even though he's gone, we still live in his shadow and he still dictates our policies even long after he's gone. We have to do better than having policies that are merely meant to thwart someone who is not there. The boogeyman is gone. It's time to get back to evidence. Boosters, boosters, boosters. This week, the US FDA gave the first EUA for a booster, a third dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine to individuals who had a solid organ transplant or an equivalent level of immunocompromise. This is, of course, on the basis of small data that shows that if you give these patients who typically have a low antibody titer a third dose, their antibody titer goes up in a fraction of patients. What we don't know is that as a result of giving the third dose, that they are as protected as someone who wasn't immunocompromised who got two doses. We don't know that to be true because we have not yet run long-term randomized control trials measuring clinical outcomes in a variety of circumstances. And boosters, well, whether we like it or not, they're already here and they will likely, and there's reporting that says they will be offered more and more in the months to come in the United States. This requires us to think a little bit more about boosters, 
What are they? When are they necessary? And are they just? Let's talk about when are they necessary. Now, I think it's reasonable to think that immunocompromised patients are a very vulnerable population. We ought to do everything possible to improve their outcomes for SARS-CoV-2. And if we have to give a third dose or a fourth dose or a fifth dose, so be it. But what I would like to see is some randomized controlled trial showing different dosing strategies and checking the titer if need be, and showing that those dosing strategies actually lower the risk of bad outcomes, severe infection, or even the acquisition of SARS-CoV-2. Because I worry a little bit that there's somebody out there who's going to get that third dose and they're still going to be quite vulnerable to the virus. And they won't know that. In fact, they might feel falsely reassured by the third dose. Of course, the data to date provides no such guidance. It's not really large empirical data. It's small, small data. And it led to the EUA, but it's not the sort of robust data we need to counsel our patients. The next question, solid organ transplant or an equivalent immunocompromised condition. What is an equivalent immunocompromised condition? Naturally, that's going to be abused by whomever and who and wherever they want to. And it can include anything, I think. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with somebody. And of course, we all know there are conditions that people suffer profound immunocompromised status. And I work in field where we take care of a lot of such patients, but will this apply even more broadly than that? Will it apply to anyone with an autoimmune condition? I don't know, but I suspect that there'll be some people who grease the wheels in that direction and that perhaps wealthier patients who have access to the system would be more likely to get such a third dose. Let's talk about everybody else, healthy people. I think it's really important that we remember that the bar for healthy people, for people who are otherwise without comorbidities, who aren't immunocompromised, in order to give more boosters, you're going to have to prove to me that you are less likely to acquire SARS-CoV-2 as a result of those boosters. I'm not going to accept antibody titers. I think that's insufficient. It's not even a surrogate outcome because we don't know the strength of surrogacy with antibody titers and the rate of SARS-CoV-2 acquisition. We do know there's a correlation. Of course, it is a prognostic marker, but we don't know that interventions that improve that antibody titer when it comes to the third or perhaps even the fourth dose subsequently lower your risk of bad SARS-CoV-2 outcomes. For a healthy person, I think the imperative question is by getting the third dose or the fourth dose or the fifth dose a year from now or two years from now, am I at a lower risk of dying or being hospitalized with SARS-CoV-2? And I think that's what we're gonna wanna see before we go there. The last thought, justice. Justice is important. And you know, your chance of getting sick with SARS-CoV-2 or a new variant is something that's not only in your hands, it's in the hands of everybody in the world. And there are a lot of people in this world who are unvaccinated and we're very focused on the unvaccinated people who live in this country, but there are a lot of unvaccinated people around the world and they are at risk both to themselves as well as to all of us because they may harbor the virus that results in a mutation that results in a bad variant. It's in all our interest to get them the first dose of the vaccine. So I personally agree with the WHO that we ought to vaccinate everyone one time around before we start vaccinating the inhabitants of very wealthy nations with a third or potentially fourth vaccine. We don't know how many boosters may come. And if the threshold is merely bumping an antibody titer, then I see that there is really no limiting principle. It might come every six months indefinitely, every year, it could go on and on. If that's the gold standard endpoint, I don't think it is. And meanwhile, we will have done a profound harm to the global community. They need access to those vaccines. And you can talk about the fact that these aren't mutually exclusive. Well, they are. You can only manufacture so much mRNA vaccine and you can only direct it in certain ways. This is an opportunity cost. So it's time we take that seriously. So boosters, these are my thoughts. Like everyone else, I wanna do what's absolutely best for immunocompromised individuals. 
these data, I think, still have a lot of questions for what's best for immunocompromised individuals. I think it's open-ended as to who is immunocompromised enough to fit this EUA. I think that may be abused in ways that reinforce socioeconomic wealth and patterns of power. And I think there's a global community out there who is starving for vaccines. And, and if we don't give it to them, we'll have failed. We'll have failed all of us. I want to talk to you about randomized control trials of policy interventions. When I go on Twitter and I look what people say, it appears to me they have no idea how to conduct these randomized trials. They're not familiar with them. And moreover, their heads are filled with many misconceptions. So let's clarify. Now, what is a randomized trial of a policy intervention? Now, policy is about making broad mandates or recommendations or behavioral changes and trying to improve outcomes in a large group of people, be it a community, a hospital, or even a school or nation. And you can do randomized controlled trials of policy interventions to make sure that the intervention itself does what you think it does. Let's take one example, abstinence-only education. There's no person on earth who doubts that a prerequisite to getting pregnant is having sex. And if you don't have sex at all, you're not going to get pregnant. But that's not the question if you started to ask whether or not we should teach students about abstinence-only methods to avoid getting pregnant. For instance, an abstinence-only program suggesting that the only thing will tell them to avoid getting pregnant is don't have sex at all. Of course, not having sex works perfectly if it is done. But in the real world, things get messy. People have all sorts of desires. And the question is, by teaching them abstinence-only theories and philosophies, do they have less teenage pregnancies? And you can test that. You can randomize classrooms to abstinence-only education and look to see how many of those kids have teenage pregnancies, and classrooms that have usual education. I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, usual health class. Now, somebody might say online, how is this possible? You can't randomize the control group to just have sex. Well, of course, no one would do that. You're not randomizing the control group to have sex. You're randomizing them to the usual health education you provide. And the question is whether or not you should be spending all that money on abstinence-only education. Now let's say the results come in and there's a certain rate of teen pregnancy in both groups, 13 per 100,000. What does that tell you? That tells you that an abstinence-only education fails to improve outcomes beyond the usual education. What if it's higher? It tells you it's actually detrimental. What if it's lower? Well, it tells you it works. That's the question. You're randomizing a policy proscription, a randomizing a behavioral and educational program. You can do such a thing. Now, there's one thing that comes up and that's a difference between individual and cluster design for an abstinence-only education program, you could do it at an individual level. You could pull each student aside and teach them things separately and see how many kids end up in relationships with a teenage pregnancy or something like that. But a better way to do it would be a cluster methods where you randomize groups of kids, perhaps at the classroom level, and look at classrooms where one strategy was assigned to classrooms where it wasn't. The other thing you could do is you could randomize the whole school. You could randomize schools at a cluster level and look at schools where it was done and schools where it wasn't done. The power, of course, is related to the number of clusters rather than the number of individuals per se, but there are methods well-worn to do this kind of work. But let me give you a couple examples from biomedicine where we've done cluster randomized controlled trials. One is a cluster randomized trial in Australia of the rapid response team called MERIT. It came out in the Lancet maybe 15 years ago. And even though rapid response teams are seductive, they make a whole bunch of sense, when you randomly allocate hospitals to have a rapid response team or not, I don't believe you lowered the key endpoint, which is the number of people who are dying from critical illness. 
Let's take another example, the STAR ICU randomized control trial. Now we all know VRE and MRSA are debilitating pathogens in the unit. And unlike individual level interventions, if one person in the unit has MRSA, potentially that may make it more likely that the next person gets MRSA. So if you wanted to test whether or not we should routinely swab individuals entering into the unit, and if they're MRSA or uh, VRE positive, place them on barrier precautions, you could do a cluster randomized control trial to answer that question, randomized intensive care units to this strategy of swabbing and testing and barrier precautions versus the usual care, which doesn't mean you go in there and you're never allowed to wear gloves, of course. It means you're allowed to do all the things you normally do to take precaution. And in some people that you're really worried about, you might test them for MRSA or VRE. Doesn't mean you're banned from testing them either. In fact, they did this study in the New England Journal, and here's the results during a six month intervention period. There were 5,434 admissions to 10 intervention ICUs and 3,000 admissions to eight control ICUs. Patients who are colonized or infected with MRSA or VRE were assigned to barrier precautions more frequently in intervention ICUs than control ICUs. In intervention ICUs, healthcare providers use clean gloves, gowns, and hand hygiene less frequently than required for contacts with patients assigned to barrier precautions. The mean ICU level incidence of events of colonization per, per 10,000 person days adjusted for baseline incidence did not differ significantly between the intervention and control ICUs. They conclude the intervention was not effective in reducing the transmission of MRSA or VRE, although the use of barrier precautions by providers was less than what was required. So they learned some things. One, they learned that perhaps the adherence wasn't as good as they thought, but they also learned that spending all that money to do this testing and encourage it in this manner did not work. Now, the last thing I hear about randomized controlled trials from people is, you know, it's not fair if people don't comply if we made a recommendation to do something and then for several hours of the day, they don't do that, perhaps during a nap time or something like that, it's not done. Well, then you can't really test if it works or not because they're cheating for part of the time. Well, I hate to break this to you, but any deviation from what you want someone to do is something you own. It's part of your program. So for instance, if I had a diet program and I said, you know, I'm trying, People and people have obesity, and obesity is a crushing cause of healthcare spending. I have a program for just ten thousand dollars a person. I'll come to your classroom and I'll teach these kids a strategy to make sure they never gain weight at all. And I go in the classroom and I say, "Here's my here's my solution to never gain weight: don't eat anything, just don't eat anything. Eat like one apple a day, maybe a carrot, and that's it. You're done. Just stop eating after that. That's my diet strategy and program." Now. It turns out that no one will be able to adhere to this program, not even myself. And if, I, and if you went in later and you randomized people to my program or usual education, and you found that no one lost any weight in my program, maybe they even gained weight, what if I were to tell you afterwards, well, the reason is they didn't really comply with my program. You would say that part of your diet program is the ability for it to be accepted by people. Part of a good diet means people feel satiety. People don't crave more food. And if they repeatedly cheat, it's not a good diet. It doesn't mean you had a good program, but the people were bad. It means your program is bad because you didn't account for how people really are. So these are just some key issues with randomized trials of policy. You don't randomize a control arm of an abstinence-only program to have sex. That would be crazy. You can randomize clusters of different interventions and test whether or not spending all that time and effort and getting all bent out of shape about that intervention is worth the headache and see if it actually improves the outcome you care about. And if people comply or don't comply with your intervention, you own that. That's what you own. If you want them to comply better, you need to find a way to motivate them, keep them focused on the task. This is 
randomized trials 101 people. So it's interesting to me that a lot of people who don't have a lot of expertise on randomized controlled trials are really sure that they're not possible. children even need to see faces? Why do we even have faces? The New York Times has a bold op-ed today, and it's entitled, Actually, Wearing a Mask Can Help Your Child Learn. And it's part of a growing genre I call American Delusion, where we have come to no longer think about life in terms of trade-offs, that there are potential benefits and potential downsides, but we become so deluded, we have to explain away the downsides as if there are upsides all along, so that our policies are perfect, they can't get better. They have no downside. They're just pristine. And that's what this article does. It's entitled, Actually Wearing a Mask Can Help Your Child Learn. And it comes in the face of recent controversy about whether or not babies need to see faces. Now, right now in the United States, in contrast with many of our European colleagues, we have caretakers for young babies wear a mask all day, every day, all the time. So a baby might go eight to 10 hours a day in the daycare, not seeing the face of a provider. Do they need to see faces? Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics says, as I talked about in a prior video, there's no evidence that they need to see those faces. No one's really proven how harmful it might be to not see those faces. Our friends in the UK, they think it's so ridiculous to do. They haven't even done it. The next thing we do is we mask children who are two to four years old in this country. That's against the advice of the WHO. That's against the policies of the UK, of Norway, many other nations. And yet we think with absolute certainty that has to be the right thing to do. And it's one thing to say that, you know, we don't know for sure. There are potential upsides that might slow the spread of SARS-CoV-2. There are potential downsides. Learning, acquisition, communication, socialization might be impaired by this. But on balance, we think in the moment, we ought to do it. Maybe we ought to do it in places with more referring spread. Maybe we have some nuance to it. That's not how we handle things in the United States. It has to be perfect or terrible. And so now we're spinning the negatives into positives. And this article does that. Let me read you some quotes from it. Quote, it turns out that looking at eyes is at least as important as looking at mouths to understand whom you are looking at and what they are trying to convey. Eye tracking shows that by age two, typically developing children spend more than twice as much time looking at eyes as they do mouths. Well, one way to interpret that is that the eyes are twice as important. The other way to interpret that piece of data might be that the mouth is so expressive, even with half as much time, you quickly understand the motivation and the eyes might take a little bit more time to tease out. The other way to say is that they're still looking at both. So potentially, they need to see both. And potentially, both communicate something. For instance, do you know that if there was a series of YouTube videos where we were wearing masks and talking, I doubt they'd be as popular as YouTube videos where you see the whole face. In fact, one might wonder why we have faces. I think these people have to grapple with the fact that human beings have very expressive faces and a lot of facial, mus facial musculature to express their views. This is delusion. Let me read you one more quote. Needless to say, children will not always be perfect at keeping their masks on, but the research on self-control and self-regulation suggests that children who master the skills needed to keep their masks on will grow up to be better at achieving their long-term goals, solving problems, and handling stressful situations. Is that really the case? That children who master keeping the mask on grow up to be CEOs? I don't think, I think it's an extrapolation from a number of pieces of data that can be questioned. It's also a bit of a ridiculous proposition. And it begs the question, that below some level of compliance, you start to wonder whether or not the policy intervention has any net benefit. You know, two-year-olds in daycare, they wear their masks throughout the daycare day, except those two hours where they sleep side by side in beds in the same room with potentially poor ventilation. 
So what is the purpose of a barrier when you use it for only some of the day, but not some key hours of the day, one might wonder. This is this has reached the point of insanity. It's gone so far. We are so foolish, uh, so deluded in America that we no longer come to think of the world in any sense of trade-offs. It has to be all perfect or all bad. Alistair Monroe from the UK put this. He said this article, the next article will be, quote, chopping children's hands is a great opportunity for them to use their feet. And I think that's where we're headed. This is, this is delusional, people. We need to reconcile the fact that the WHO, the United Kingdom, Norway, Sweden, United States, the AAP, and the CDC have very different ideas about masking young children, about what should be done in front of babies. This is a legitimate area of debate. We need to do da- da- have data collection. If you believe you ought to do these very draconian restrictions that they do not do in other nations that love children, you need to marshal evidence that these restrictions, as they're implemented, lower the risk of SARS-CoV-2. I think it's it's a tall order to believe that two-year-olds wearing masks work when they sleep for two hours without them. It's a tall order to believe there is no downside to babies not seeing faces. People who start to think like that, I worry that their brains have stopped working. They've become so political, so tribal, that they have stopped all cognitive processes. If we really slip into this world where these kind of articles can come in the New York Times and people can believe this I don't know what to say. I have lost a lot of faith in American institutions to protect children. I've been saying that all along. I've lost a lot of faith in scientists to use their noggin. And I think we'll be in a very bad place for a long time to come. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.